welcome to Conversations in Complexity. This afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Abby Sood. Uh, Abby is a family physician and Trillium Health Partners with a particular focus and interest in chronic pain management and is an expert on opiate prescribing. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into medicine and how did you get interested in chronic pain and uh, the opioid crisis? Well, before coming into medicine, uh, if I had a profession, it was uh, something we would call community organizing, which didn't have much cachet until a certain president not named uh, Donald Trump did that in his line of work um, and uh, really came into medicine uh, with the hopes of working in an area that could have community impact. Um, I had really worked in areas around um, Indigenous solidarity, Indigenous rights uh, while living in Montreal. And uh, family medicine had a real appeal to me uh, because of that uh, real desire and uh, keying in on community health. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do family medicine right from the get-go. And I think uh, really one of the things that drew me to family medicine was complexity. Because uh, in family medicine, there's, there's this recognition that complexity is part of life. We see complexity, we see uncertainty as family physicians, and we accept it as part of what we do. And uh, I think I picked up on that very early. And I, you, you see it obviously in other areas of medicine, but not so much as in, as in family medicine. Um, and one of my early clinical experiences happened to be in chronic pain. Uh, it was a third year, I remember very clearly, it was a thir third year elective, um, actually at the Wasser Pain Management Clinic here at, uh, at Mount Sinai. And I saw there that there was, and you see this really with any uh, pain physician, that there's, there's, there's an acceptance of uh, complexity and uncertainty and that we don't have all the answers in medicine because uh, the, the nature of chronic pain or at least what we understand of chronic pain so far. And uh, so chronic pain seemed to be a very, uh, very natural fit for what I was hoping to do, what I was hoping to contribute. And uh, I was very lucky to have that kind of experience early on. So you're working in chronic pain now. How do you think we got to the situation we're in now where the default approach to managing chronic pain was through medication use and in particular opiates? I think, I think there's a lot of different um, answers to that question. Um, one would be that uh, providing a prescription somehow satisfies the doctor-patient relationship. A patient can sort of walk out with something that they can expect to help them with this very difficult thing. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, it sort of simplifies a complex situation into one solution. And it kind of makes sense in, in, in our mentality. You have pain, uh, here's, here's a painkiller. But uh, we know that that's, we know now, uh, and I think a lot of people knew uh, earlier on as well, but uh, we, we didn't have the evidence to show or we didn't have the community impacts necessarily to show that it was problematic, that you know, th th there's a real problem with that idea that when we try and uh, reduce a complex problem into uh, a simplistic solution, you start to get unintended consequences. Um, 
and I think you see that for individual patients. Uh, clearly, you see that as a result of you know adverse effects and complications with individual patients, and then we've also seen that at a at a community level. I mean, when we're talking about something like chronic pain, you know, we estimate somewhere between fifteen to twenty percent of the population lives with chronic pain. So if you're doing that kind of practice over and over again, uh, you're going to start to see a huge impact. And I think you know, twenty, thirty years down the road now, uh, we're living with that mentality of uh, using a painkiller to treat pain. Along with your interest and your work in the clinical management of chronic pain, you also have uh, interests in both education and research. And I understand you've led a fairly successful initiative within the Ontario College of Family Physicians uh, for continuing professional development for opiate prescribing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So that started, uh, it's, it's a safer opioid prescribing pro program, which is uh, delivered through uh, the Department of uh, uh, Continuing Professional Development at the University of Toronto and led by uh, a group of faculty at the Department of Family and Community Medicine. And, uh, you know, that, that, that course um, existed for a long time under the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. And uh, about five years ago or six years ago, uh, the CPSO uh, decided they don't really have a very strong educational mandate. It should go over to the university. And that's when we really reformulated the program. And what we tried to do is, is bring the best of what we know around educational methodology to apply it to the needs of the opioid crisis. So we call it a, a context-sensitive context sensitive response to the opioid crisis, really understanding what are the needs of the opioid crisis right now and what can education be used for as essentially almost like a health policy intervention. So we often think of continuing medical education as transmitting knowledge, uh, but if designed in the right ways, I can do a lot more than that. Uh, ideally, we want it to change practice, and we know that there are a series of problematic practice prescribing behaviors amongst family physicians, primarily, as, as well as other physicians around opioids. And uh, it's not as easy as saying uh, that should change or putting out guidelines saying, uh, you know, there should be dose limits around opioid prescribing. We need to address attitudinal issues. We need to uh, address uh, uh, practice um, uh, barriers. We need to address uh, multiple stages of change. There are a lot of physicians who may not understand. Uh, you know, if, if you take a step back, in a typical family practice, though uh, we prescribe a lot of opioids, most family physicians will never have seen an opioid overdose in their practice. Um, even though the, the rates have been growing, the overall rates are, are, are relatively low, and they may never, uh, an opioid overdose may never present to family medicine. So you really have to uh, bridge that gap first about understanding. Uh, actually, you even see uh, physicians who say that um, prescribed opioids are not a contributing problem to the opioid crisis. Uh, and so you have to bridge that gap first and make that connection between what's happening at a, uh, a societal level and a community level to uh, a physician's individual practice. And there have been a lot of problems with how that's been done. I mean, there's been a lot of blame uh, put on, on, on physicians in some ways appropriately, but starting an educational intervention that way is not, not a good way to, to promote change. So we really promote uh, the understanding that if we do change our practices as prescribers, as family physicians, as nurse practitioners, we can actually have a, a beneficial impact on the opioid crisis. And we, we have tried to use 
the best of educational methodologies. So uh, multiple interventions, blended learning, active learning, uh, and distance learning. So really um, uh, making the, the program as accessible as possible. And, uh, you know, it, we, we've, we're pretty proud of what we've done. We've, we've, we've educated over the last several years uh, close to 1,000 prescribers uh, across the country. Um, and we have good evidence that, that they've changed their practice as a result of participating in the program. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's striking when you look at international comparisons, how high the rate of opiate prescribing is amongst Canadian physicians. We hand them out almost like M&Ms. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I have to admit as a practitioner, I was um, brought into a context where simply renewing somebody's existing, you know, Tylenol with codeine uh, prescription seemed routine. Like, oh, they've been on it for a long time. You know, they get pain. Why don't I just renew it? So a lot of it is the conditioned behavior that you learn when you become a physician. And I think that education is a really potent way to sort of break those chains, or at least insert oneself into those uh, chains of behavior. Because we like to think as practitioners that we are scientific and informed by science. But as you say, when we step back and you look at Canadian performance versus other jurisdictions, well, it's something extra scientific that's going on. It's right. a culture thing. So well, it's really, it's, if I could, if I could build on that a little yeah. bit, it's, it's it's really interesting because uh, even five years ago, so a lot of the participants in our program were older docs um, who perhaps had not kept up with the times and um, you know wanted to understand better, or in some cases, their regulatory authority made them uh, uh, come and learn, and uh, th that was a lot of the participants who came to our program. And now what we're seeing. And this is really part of the evolution of the opioid crisis is uh, younger docs who are new to practice. They've taken over the practices of these older doctors who've retired and uh, who are prescribing these mega doses of opioids uh, for their, their patients with chronic pain. And now these new physicians, I mean, you know, in, in one of our recent courses, we had a physician in our first year of practice who had three complaints uh, to the college, the regu her regulatory college because they're stuck in a hard spot. If they don't continue um, uh, the prescribing practices of the doctor who they took over from, uh, the patients complain. Yeah, they go into withdrawal. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're in withdrawal, and, and they're used to a certain uh, routine of getting their prescriptions. And uh, But if they do continue to prescribe at those very high doses, then they come under regulatory scrutiny because we're not supposed to be doing that anymore. And so, you know, be, there's, and I think that points to what, what I see in the complexity of the problem is that, you know, besides uh, our prescribing behaviors, there's this change in, you know, uh, health human resources that's going on at the same time too, which is influencing how we think about opioids. And uh, as we get new people who've been trained in, in, in different ways of thinking, but at this, you know, at the same time, we don't have new modes for treating chronic pain. No. So, so we say, you know, stop prescribing opioids, um, but, uh, you know, we're not going to fund psychotherapy, uh, which is evidence-based. We don't fund meditation, which is evidence-based. There are a lot of uh, non-opioid uh, pharmacotherapies that are not, uh, that are not funded. So what else are we offering? We, we talk about multidisciplinary care uh, that's not accessible in most communities. So uh, it's... It's it's a very hard situation for uh, both the patient and the and the physician to be in. 
Well, as you know, my interest is in older adults where there's a very high rate of chronic pain. And we really have no good pharmacological options. And this is a very hard one insight I had. So, you know, opiates clearly not the drug of choice. They're constipating, they cross the blood-brain barrier, cause dizziness and falls. They're also habituating. And the other major class, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, raise your blood pressure, are thrombogenic and ulcerogenic. So choose your poison. Uh, neither one of them has actually got where, you know, we've got a situation where adverse effects probably exceed the beneficial effects. And I'm simply convinced on clinical grounds and research grounds that acetaminophen doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. So that means we have to look at new modalities of managing pain. And because it's chronic, it's not going to go away easily. So your research side of your interest, where do you see the horizons of research in terms of addressing the uh, substantial burden of chronic pain we face? There's an urgent need. So uh, a lot of the focus has been on uh, around the opioid crisis has been around and appropriately so has been around more uh, immediate needs of uh, reducing uh, deaths and uh, and other harms from opioids. And that's what we need in the short term. But over the long term, we do need to address how we are going to uh, treat chronic pain. Uh, for, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in older adults, we often think, again, we think of the opioid crisis as uh, uh, now uh, illicit fentanyl use um, by younger people. But we know that people 65 years and older have the highest rates of uh, opioid uh, hospitalizations, opioid overdose hospitalizations. So uh, very, very much still affected by this crisis. Um, we have uh, fairly good evidence that Interestingly, uh, psychological interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation are very effective for the management of chronic pain. And uh, interestingly, not just for uh, chronic pain that has associated psychological symptoms. So there's even been a, a, a couple, actually, uh, systematic reviews looking at people who have plain old knee arthritis. Do they benefit from psychological interventions for pain? And amazingly, uh, they do um, on the order of, you know, uh, better than we see from opioids, a 30-40% reduction uh, or analgesic effect from these psychological interventions. And, uh, you know, in, in this emerging area of brain science, we also have seen what some of the mechani underlying mechanisms are for that. Uh, we know that the brain is plastic. Uh, uh, it changes um, uh, as a result of experience, as a result of training, and uh, pain is very much mediated by the brain. And even in older adults, so I've had a colleague uh, who studied meditation uh, for uh, depression, in uh, late, late, late life depression, so people over 65, and showed very beneficial effects. Um, and so I expect uh, we would see the same kinds of effects in, in chronic pain. And the benefit is that uh, we, we, we don't have the side effects. The challenge is how do we make that kind of therapy accessible? I think that that's the challenge that we see right now. Uh, and it's not just a, a funding issue, but uh, who are the providers and what kind of context should they be providing this kind of care? Uh, what sort of follow-up do they need? How long do they need to be 
uh, does the intervention need to look like? How long do they need to continue these kind of interventions for? Those are all unanswered questions. Uh, but what we do know right now is that these kinds of interventions can reduce both uh, pain and also what's called pain bothersomeness, hmm. uh, or really that's the, that's the technical or scientific term for suffering. And that's one thing that really hasn't been appropriately addressed by our uh, approach to chronic pain. And I, I really ask the question, when somebody's coming to, to me or to us with pain, are they coming to us for uh, pain relief or are they coming to us for suffering relief? Right. And I think that's where we've missed the boat. We've tried to address their pain and we haven't addressed their suffering. And uh, opioids are not going to address their suffering. If anything, uh, it has a likelihood of, of making things worse. Um, so uh, we, we know, uh, again, if we go back to the, to the brain science, uh, the pain relief and the pain uh, bothersomeness are mediated by different parts of our brain. And we know that psychological interventions uh, like meditation can actually uh, change both uh, both those different parts of the brain uh, accordingly. So I think this is a very promising area, uh, which uh, I think is is, is worth uh, worth studying in detail. So that's I see your horizons of your future in transforming our understanding and appreciation and management of chronic pain in primary care. And I think you have a very promising future ahead of you. And it's been really great speaking with you tonight. And thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. A real pleasure. Thank you.